morning. This is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on the show, our host, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, is joined by Sarah Davis, certified professional midwife with a master's in public health. They'll discuss local numbers and the rollout of vaccines. As you know, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman is a local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. She joins us via phone this morning. Good morning, Dr. Alleman. How are you doing today? Good morning, Mallory. How are you this morning? I'm doing all right. Nice day out, really. I mean, besides the fog. (laughs) (laughs) The fog does make it sort of feel a little magical driving. And is Sarah on the line with us? I am. Good morning, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm, my pleasure. So, um, brief thing about numbers. Um, there are just more cases. They continue to increase. It's hard to know. Um, they are increasing rapidly enough that it's really hard to know whether we can, um, how trustworthy the data is. And I'm not trying to cast aspersions on anybody. It's just harder to count higher numbers. Um, so, we have seen... Um, if anybody's watching the curves, we saw a dip around both Christmas and New Year's, and that is not that there were fewer cases. That has to do probably with uh, uh, less testing because um, people who swab noses and process tests took some time off. Thank you for doing that. And also the processing of that information because um, people who work in public health, some of them took the first day off they had since March, and I hope that they rested in our um, a little bit more ready to resume the slog that they've been in. Uh, many thousand millennial blessings to them. Um, so, but we're seeing, like in Missouri, we had on the the on New Year's Eve, we had um, close to five thousand new cases. Um, and again, that's probably a backlog of um, reporting. Um, so nationwide and in Missouri, we have a rapid spread of the virus. And then um, a a metric I've been watching is uh, vaccination rates. So about uh, 4 million people in the United States have received um, one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, which is, you know, less than a fourth of what was promised of 20 million. But I'll have to say that I held that promise very lightly because that was a lot of vaccinations over some difficult times. And I am... um, Frustrated with the slowness and also standing in the possibility that we're going to just get better at that. Um, so it looks like in Missouri, let's see if I can find that, uh, 1.5% of our population has received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, 218,800 vaccine doses were um, delivered to us and 89,565, so 41% of them have been injected. These vaccines do have a limited shelf life and the shipping did start um, uh, about three weeks ago. Uh, so we are moving into the limitation of their their shelf life if they are not at these remarkably cold temperatures. Uh, at these remarkably cold temperatures, their shelf life is about six months. So if we can get them into a freezer um, right away, then they can last a little bit longer. But there's, you know, lots of uh, variabilities in that. Yes, you can put them in six months to a freezer, but once they've thawed out, then you can't refreeze them and, you know, limitations like that. 
Um, and all of this has happened uh, during a time when uh, delivery was slowed by uh, winter storms, by holiday, by the challenges that our post office faces from uh, from their leadership, um, and uh, holidays that uh, make uh, make it harder to get people out and to get health professionals out. And honestly, we're hoping that the um, medical care system that uh, the medical the same medical care system that needs to vaccinate people is busy right now trying to um, staff our hospitals. So it's not exactly the same people, but um, we can't really it'd be difficult to pull people out of a hospital system, which we could sometimes do. So um, that is the update. And I don't have much more local data because the Boone County Health Department has not updated their data since the 31st. Um, and Sarah and I were two of the people who got vaccinated this week. So congratulations, Sarah. <laughs> thank you, and same to you. Thanks. Did you want to speak at all about um, deciding to get vaccinated, whether you had mixed feelings, and what your experience has been? Sure. I did have uh, some mixed feelings about getting vaccinated and for two main reasons, um, and one of which is that I wish that I had a magic wand and could magically protect people in my life <coughs> who are at high risk um, before I got my own vaccine. Um, right. And of course, that's not really how vaccine um, rollout campaigns work. <clears throat> and the second reason that I thought hard about getting vaccinated is because um, I am usually a person who is a late uh, adopter of medical technologies. And by that, I mean that if we have multiple medications available for a particular condition, I would be likely to choose older medications most of the time, just because we know more about them. Uh, we have really excellent ways to evaluate the safety of new drugs as they come out. And I am very grateful for the people at the FDA who do that evaluation. And it's also true that the more people that receive a treatment or a medication, the more information we have about it. And we have seen that to some extent with the mRNA vaccines that have just come out and that now we know that they are, seem to be anyway, a little more likely than some other kinds of vaccines to cause a particular kind of allergic reaction. Now, it's still very, very rare, um, but that's, that's the kind of thing that we find out when we begin to give a medication or a treatment to very large numbers of people. So normally, I'm a person because I want to have lots of information when I make a decision. Um, and this time around, we are experiencing such a massive public health crisis um, that I think it's my turn to be an early adapter <laughs> and um, go ahead and be part of the large numbers that are giving us the data so that I can also do my best to keep the people um, that I take care of safe. Yeah, I think that you've done a really good job of, of summarizing why um, my mixed feelings as well. As I've watched and listened to 
people that I care about who are medical professionals get the vaccine. I've been so excited for them, and I've also been sort of watching through my fingers, you know, like um, almost as if the best cor- the best analogy I can have is if they were um, on an Apollo rocket headed to the moon. Um, <laughs> like I'm so excited that they get to do exactly what they want to do, and I think it could be really powerfully transformative. And I've been around long enough to know that sometimes these things can have um, consequences that we had not hoped for. Um, and so I've been kind of biting my fingernails and excited for them. So I've been doing both things, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, and so when it was time for me, I was like, oh, now I get a chance to, you know, do you want to fly to the moon? Um, and I didn't know. So for a couple of days, I'm like, mm, I don't know. like what. And then I just decided that um, if it was an, op- uh, an, an option, I was going to go for it. Um, that I you know, as part of saying yes to life and yes to my profession. And um, the frustration has been over this last year, there have been many frustrations, but one that really weighs on my heart is not really being able to lean in and take care of my patients the way I want to, that I felt like we really needed to create a lot of space between us. And I know I'm not supposed to change my behavior once I've had the vaccine, but I think I probably will begin to see more people in the office that I have previously been doing uh, over the phone, we'll still wash our hands and keep distance and wear masks and open the windows and do all of those things because I know the vaccine isn't 100%. And there's a lot we don't know about the vaccine, but it feels like one more thing like um, upgrading to MERV 13 filters in my office. Am I sure that that's going to make a difference? No, but I am hopeful that if I do enough things that might make some difference, it will it will be helpful. Okay. And then um, I'll have to say I was very, very impressed with the whole system about how quickly we were given an appointment and how Mm -hmm. easy it was to show up at the local DNH pharmacy and how kind everybody was. And, um, you know, it's a little, it's trying to keep social distancing between people who need to fill out complex paperwork and then get a vaccine and get their information and then sit and be observed for 15 minutes because of this risk of a allergic reaction before you just put people in cars to drive away and keeping all those people organized, moving and away from each other um, is a challenge. And I felt like they did that um, really well. And I think that over time they're going to do it even better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have any comments about that? Just that I am so extremely grateful to all the people that are working on the vaccine campaigns. Right. And then I'm going to say that I had an impressively, like I had no sensation that I really had a vaccine until about six hours afterwards. And then for the next 24 hours, I had an impressively sore arm, armpit, chest wall, shoulder girdle. And then just as suddenly as it seemed to start to bother me, it went away. And I am fascinated by what that, like, what did my body, what was my body doing while it was giving me all of that information? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what your response was, if you want to share that. Sure. I had sort of an achy and heavy feeling in the arm that I was vaccinated in. It started just maybe an hour or so after I was vaccinated. It wasn't particularly bothersome, but I, I noticed that. And then the next morning, I also woke up with a very, very sore arm. 
and um, that continued all day and most of that night also like it was pretty uncomfortable while I was trying to sleep but by the next day so 48 hours out my arm felt significantly better like surprisingly so and by the next day I could almost not find the spot and it was almost almost surprising or baffling to me because it had been so painful <laughs> just, yes. just recently. Um, so it, it, it was a big response and then um, it went away quickly. And I am a very curious person and I was excited for my body to be having this clear um, immune reaction because we know that that's what bodies do when they're being challenged um, in the way that vaccines challenge them. And I also wished that uh, I wished that I could watch my immune system action. You know, it was kind of it was kind of fun to be part of this uh, this big vaccine uh, rollout. You know, and wondering what everybody's immune systems were doing and what kind of what kind of titers they had in the moment. Right. And then both of us have participated in a, a web-based uh, symptom tracker uh, for uh, responses to the vaccine. So every day I get a text asking me to check in and tell them how I'm feeling. And um, it is voluntary. Nobody has to do that. You have to opt in. And it's actually like it takes a little bit of effort to do it. Um, so I, I want there to be more of those kinds of things where... We're doing more of that. And so speaking of the value of symptom trackers, I wanted us to talk about this article that you sent to me that was lovely about um, another way for us to, to sort of talk about uh, droplets versus aerosols, this whole thing of, you know, is it um, how far away do we have to stand from each other? How small of a droplet can the virus uh, infect people floating on? How much do we need to worry about air filters and keeping the windows open? And I'm wondering, and it's from Korea, and I'm wondering if you'd like to introduce us to that article. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that this uh, article is going to be linked on the KOPN Facebook page. I hope so. I can send that if it's not already there (laughs) um, so that other people can read it. But it has been profiled in a number of newspapers um, in the last month because it talks about transmission that presumably happens in a restaurant in Korea. And one of the reasons that it's such a valuable study is because there are some different community conditions um, that were true at the time that that this um, particular little mini outbreak that they're writing about occurred. And they contributed to a the setup basically for a really good little natural experiment. And so that's an experiment where we didn't plan it to happen, but some things happened that we were then able to study anyway. So right. in this case, they, uh, the researchers um, whose names I, I'm sorry, are on the piece of paper that I left in the house. <laughs> so Elizabeth, if you have that. I can read those. I, I okay. They are Korean names, and I uh, I have no experience saying Korean names. So it was Ken Song Kwan, Jim M Park, uh, Jung M Park, Young June Park, Don Young Jung. Those are the first four. Mm-hmm. 
And what those researchers looked at was a case where three different people who had visited a restaurant were infected. And what happened was that the people in the restaurant were not sitting close to each other and they were not at the same table. And in one case, um, two of the people overlapped for only five minutes while they were in the restaurant together. So what I'm getting at is the conditions aren't conditions that we usually associate with spread. So right now, the CDC's current definition of a close contact, and that would be a person that we think would be likely or more likely to be infected, is the person who spent 15 or more cumulative minutes within six feet of a person who is contagious, and that's within a 24-hour period. So the people in this restaurant did not experience any of those conditions. They were um, <clears throat> they were further apart than feet. In one case, they were a little more than 20 feet apart. And again, they were not at the same table. Um, the person who was a little over 20 feet apart um, from what turned out to be the the person who was contagious um, only overlapped in the restaurant with that person for five minutes. Now, the reason that we were able to get this very specific information is because this happened in Korea where people's telephone data is being used by epidemiologists to um, help with contact tracing. So once they realized that they had two new cases in a place where they had had no cases for more than two weeks, um, they looked at phone data and discovered that a person who had overlapped in the restaurant with these other two people, but who, again, were not at the same table, you know, not did not interact with each other in any way in the restaurant, that a person from another part of Korea had traveled, visited the restaurant, you know, at the same time as these two people who had positive cases and then had gone back to these, this other region and had a positive case. So that, that's kind of the, the basics of, of what happened. So again, the reason that they were able to look so closely at this case and to make some assumptions about how the infections occurred is because they had the phone data. It turns out they also had um, the closed circuit television uh, tapes that they could review so they could confirm where the people had been in the restaurant. And then the researchers went back and they measured airflow at, I think, almost 40 different places inside of the restaurant. And they had people sit in the places where people had been sitting um, at the time that the people who were infected were all in the restaurant together. And then they measured the airflow again to make sure that they were getting an accurate idea of where air was going. So it turns out that this particular restaurant had ceiling air conditioners and they were directing very strong air flows in very specific ways around the restaurant. And the people who were infected were sitting right in the path of these strong air flows. Um, and which you would kind of think, well, wouldn't that be better? Like, don't I want to be where the, the air is flowing quickly? Right. So this is the difference between um, ventilation and airflow. Right. And this is one of the yeah. really important things that is um, being discussed about this study. 
Um, so one of the things that the researchers said is that, you know, again, in any situation where people have been infected, it's, it's hard to tell which direction the infection happened. And it's hard to tell that infections are linked. In this particular case, there were so few cases in the area um, that they could say pretty definitively that the infections were linked. They did also go ahead and analyze the samples from all three people to see that they were, in fact, genetically linked. They were so similar that they could see that they had to have been linked. <clears throat> but what the researchers were talking about in the discussion, and this is, this is the important part for us to know, is that some of our ideas about how spread happens are probably not true in all of our indoor spaces. So there are a lot of indoor spaces where we don't have very good ventilation, but we do have a lot of air circulation. And that can be from heating and air conditioning. That can be from a ceiling fan, um, you know, uh, kitchen exhaust fans. There are all different kinds of reasons why you might have air moving in a particular way in the space. Um, and that, like you said, we often think about the air movement as being a really helpful thing. But in this case, it was actually what was able to facilitate infection, even though people were sitting 20 feet apart and only right. in the same space for five minutes. Yeah, and we are not going to get storytelling like this here right now because we have such widespread community spread, we wouldn't know in any restaurant, we couldn't, we couldn't presume like they could that these, this was probably the only infected person in the restaurant. And our public health uh, contact tracers are um, not, they don't have the reserves right now to ponder deeply a curious case of, well, we don't know how this person got it. Um, because right now, we have more cases every day, more positive test results every day than, than our current uh, county health department can call all the people. So they can call somewhere around 70 people a day, and we're running, you know, one and a half to twice that number every day, which means the people that they can't call get a letter or an email, and so they're just not hearing all the stories. Right. So. And even if they were hearing all the stories, the reality is that there is such widespread community spread in the United States at this time that not only could you not assume that there weren't any other um, COVID positive people in the restaurant, you could also not assume that the people who became infected hadn't been exposed multiple times in right. many different situations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is that they have a tracking system. And do you know how their system works? Um, if you're talking about the telephone system, um, yeah, they, yeah, they are using location data. Um, and that is something that is available in the United States, it, but only in a voluntary way. So you could sign up to have your phone receive an alert if someone else who has signed up um, to have their phone give alerts. Mm, turns out to be COVID positive and you have spent a particular amount of time in proximity to that person. But in the case of this study and in the case of, you know, the rest of Korea, they are using that same tool, but on an involuntary basis for everyone all of the time as part of their contact tracing. So 
again, that's not a tool that we have here to use for health departments because in the United States, at this point, that would be considered an invasion of privacy. Um, it's also an extremely effective epidemiological tool. It is, yes. Um, so speaking of airflow being different than ventilation, do you want to talk briefly about the inflatable costume in a hospital? <laughs> sure. I think probably most of us spend a fair bit of time reading uh, news news stories about COVID-19. I know Elizabeth and I both do, and it's one of my favorite things to do is to follow up on a study and um, see what we can learn from it. But um, one of the more uh, strange stories that I read in the last couple days, a hospital system in California where um, an employee who works in the emergency department wore an inflatable costume um, and, you know, intended to just be for fun. So inflatable costumes, if you have not maybe gone trick-or-treating and encountered like the inflatable T-Rexes or something like that, uh, require a little fan because the, the whole reason it, it looks so cool as a costume is because it's, it's full of air. <laughs> and right, it and it's big too. and puffy and it can be a different right. shape than the person is, yes. Exactly, and it can't be sealed off because then the person inside wouldn't be able to breathe. So the point is that um, have fans which circulate a lot of air very quickly and in a way that um, the person would not circulate on their own if they were just walking around right. breathing. So right. within a relatively short period of time, like to the point that we're reading about it now, um, and we are fewer than two weeks out, um, I believe that 44 people were infected uh, from an exposure that happened around that time, and they are presuming that it happened as a result of the costume, that the costume blew so much air, so much further than it would you know, ordinarily go, um, that it was able to right. spread droplets and perhaps aerosols um, around an indoor environment really, really quickly and thoroughly. Right. So sadly, this employee, this health worker, bless their hearts, thought that they would spread some holiday cheer, much needed, and instead inadvertently ended up, was turned out was contagious during that time and spread COVID. Instead, we presume, but again, we don't know whether how many of those 44 people had positive household members later, you know, earlier in the week. Right. Right. But, but in epidemiology, you know, if, if we see an outbreak in a cluster, we presume that they're all related. Um, and 44 suddenly um, is an, a remarkable number. So, right. And we also cannot sense. we cannot guarantee that the person wearing the costume was the person who was contagious. We think that that's what happened because it it makes the most sense based on um, right. what we can see. But it's possible that the fan was circulating air from other people who were contagious, or maybe there was more than one contagious person. Um, with, again, the amount of community spread that we have right now, um, those are all things that could happen. 
Dr. Yeah. Alleman, we have a really quick um, listener question, if you want to yeah. address it real quick. Sure. That um, sounds great. So going kind of back to the topic of vaccines, someone called in and was wondering, um, once people are va- vaccinated, can they still spread the virus and should they still continue wearing a mask? Uh, we don't know. And yes, they should. So um, we should keep wearing masks for many reasons. One is um, especially for just a sense of fairness. Um, So few people have been able to get the vaccine that um, for us to then wander around with T-shirts proclaiming that we've been vaccinated. So ha ha ha, we don't have to wear a mask. That just seems rude. Um, And the other is we... It it really irritates me, but we did not do the additional part of the study when we were doing like effectiveness stuff of like just swabbing everybody's throat, everybody's nose once a week who was in the study or even a representative sample. So we do not know yet whether vaccinated people can uh, be infected with an asymptomatic case. And that won't matter in 10 years. Because we don't really, you know, if once everybody, what's most people who want to be are vaccinated, and it's like it will matter some, but it won't matter as much as it does now because what we're trying to do is reduce spread so that the um, hospital doesn't uh, collapse. It does look like there is a difference in the into the risk of contracting symptomatic COVID nineteen disease um, within about ten days of the first dose of the vaccine. So um, there's a lot of question about whether um, whether we should give everybody one dose before anybody gets two doses because you do get partial support with the first dose. There's also some question about, especially with the Moderna vaccine, that maybe a, a half dose would provide some back, some coverage. So, and Elizabeth, yeah. can I add fast to that, that that it's true that we do not know whether or not people who are vaccinated can still be asymptomatic spreaders, but we are hoping that that won't be the case. And that's based on the way people respond to many other vaccines. There are some vaccines that do not prevent people from becoming mildly sick or asymptomatic spreaders, but many or most of them do that really well. Most of them do that very well. Right. Right. We're hoping that this is the same way. And honestly, we also don't know that about people who have gotten the, the disease and have appeared to have pretty good protection from the disease. That yes, you can get the disease a second time. Um, and we have seen some people with symptomatic, you know, symptomatic repeat infections, uh, but that is very rare. Most people are not getting it a second time. And we have not really tested for asymptomatic repeat uh, uh, symptoms. Um, infection and contagion. So we should, no one should presume that just because they have had the vaccine or had the disease that they can um, uh, dispense with uh, other uh, protections and uh, precautions. So we had, Sarah and I had some other things that we wanted to talk about, but we have finished the half hour. Thank you so much, Mallory. Thank you for everybody who tuned in. Um, Happy New Year. Uh, so excited for the new year. We are not done with this slog yet, so wear your mask, wash your hands, keep your distance, uh, take your vitamin D. And um, I do want to add one more thing. If you are a healthcare provider in Boone County with direct patient care 
and you would like to sign up for a vaccine, please get in touch with me either through Facebook, through the station, call my office 443-7070 or email me at elizabeth at dralleman.com and we will pass on the information that we received from the health department. Please do not call the health department. Please do not call DNH Drugstore. Please um, contact me. I'll be happy to uh, talk to you about what, what your contact is and send you the information if you need it. Great. Thank you both. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. Special thanks to our guest, Sarah Davis. Sarah is a certified professional midwife with a master's in public health. If you missed part of this program or want to share it with your friends, you can find it later today at kopn.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks to all who call in with their listener questions. As always, we want to invite you to share your questions with us as we plan for future episodes. Leave a message for us at 573-874-1139 or email gm at kopn.org. Catch us again live on Wednesday at 9 a.m. with host Jenny Chadwick. Thanks for tuning in to KOPN 89.5 FM. Between the Lines is up next. Stay tuned.